Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today I'm joined by Dr. Mirasol Forcadella, who is a neuroimmunology fellow here at the Walton Centre. And today we're going to be talking about MS, diagnosis and management. Hi, Mary. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. Thanks for thanks for coming on. So, um, the way I thought we could uh, th- sort of structure this episode is um, I'm going to discuss with you sort of three relatively common sort of clinical uh, scenarios that might be seen either on the wards or in a in a MS clinic setting, and and really just get your thoughts on the um, on how you would approach that. And hopefully by doing that, we'll discuss lots of the sort of common clinical uh, issues involved in, in looking after patients with MS. So. First case, we've got a 38-year-old male who's referred to the MS clinic. He initially presented to his local hospital with onset of double vision two weeks earlier. During his inpatient stay, he was examined by the visiting neurologist who identified that he had an internuclear ophthalmoplegia. Otherwise, he's well, no other significant findings on exam, and he's had no prior neurological problems or medical health problems in general. He had an MRI of his brain performed that demonstrated an area of inflammation suggestive of demyelination affecting the brain stem. And, and that was thought to be responsible for the INR, uh, internuclear ophthalmoplegia. Alongside that, there were several other areas of inflammation suggestive of demyelination in both cerebral hemispheres. The patient was diagnosed at the time with clinically isolated syndrome and was discharged home with a course of oral steroids to come to the clinic today. He's gradually improved over the last two weeks. Okay, so so this patient was diagnosed with clinically isolated syndrome. Perhaps the best way to start would be if you could just tell us what do we mean by the term clinically isolated syndrome? Yes, of course. So what you'd be sort of thinking about when someone mentions clinically isolated syndrome is that it's a first clinical episode of neurological symptoms but neurological symptoms that have a feel usually uh, for a multiple sclerosis type CNS inflammation. So for example, internuclear ophthalmoplegia would be a very typical presentation uh, for someone with multiple sclerosis. So um, that would be quite a typical uh, symptom to be presenting with clinically isolated syndrome. On assessment, the patient shouldn't meet McDonald's criteria for multiple sclerosis by definition. So with someone with clinically isolated syndrome, you're saying, I'm thinking about, you know, someone at risk of multiple sclerosis, but they don't meet the criteria right now. I guess the other important thing to note is that, you know, it's not usually for things that are very transient. You're looking at symptoms that have been present for at least 24 hours usually, and you you would want to be looking at other alternative diagnoses or it would have confirmed a lesion that looks like multiple sclerosis, for example, as they had in this patient. Okay. So the patient sat in in front of you in clinic and has obviously Googled his symptoms, Googled the diagnosis clinically isolated syndrome, and he's very anxious to know, is he likely to have another clinical event? What would be your approach? What do you tell them? And are there any ways that you can be more specific with this patient as opposed to just giving general statistics? Yeah, yes, I do think there is ways to be more specific. I mean, 
I guess it's important to tell them a little bit about what you're suspecting, but also that not everyone who experiences a clinically isolated syndrome will go on to develop multiple sclerosis. There's lots of different varying numbers, and then you can do things to give you a more accurate description. But for example, it can vary from one in five to four in five people, something like that. But it is impossible for us to be able to tell people we would love to have a crystal ball, but unfortunately we don't. So we can give estimates, but we can't give definite um, answers. In terms of things that can inform whether patients are more likely to have another event in the future and therefore you know, potentially be given a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, you can look at demographic things. So people who are female um, and people who are younger perhaps uh, have a higher risk of having a second episode. And then you can look at investigation results. So if you, if you choose to go on to do some investigations, um, there are certain investigation results that would make it seem more likely that that patient in front of you would go on to develop multiple sclerosis. So if you do a lumbar puncture, the presence of CSF oligoclonal bands, I mean, I think we'll talk about this later, but um, you know that has been one of the things in the past that has been shown to develop, uh, be more common in patients who develop multiple sclerosis. And also the number of lesions on an MRI can be helpful. If they have, for example, more than 10 brain lesions, that's considered to be a high impact prognostic factor. And then spinal cord lesions as well. Okay. Um, so what would, uh, what would be your, the role of additional tests at this stage? And, and would you routinely perform a lumbar puncture in these patients? Or is that a discussion to be had? Yes, I think additional testing is, is considered at this stage for patients such as this. Um, if a patient had had only an MRI brain, for example, we'd often go on to do an MRI spine to look for evidence of lesions elsewhere and, and pro for prognosis as well. Um, infratentorial lesions are known to be prognostic as well, uh, as well. Um, so perhaps leading to a, a worse prognosis in the future. And yes, a lumbar puncture is something that I would discuss with the patient at this stage, and, and I'd probably recommend it. Um, when you do a lumbar puncture in someone you're suspecting multiple sclerosis for, you're looking for CSF-specific oligoclonal bands, um, and you should do a serum sample as well to make sure, you know, to see whether they match or whether it's only in the CSF and not the serum. When you're looking for a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, um, there are criteria to help. They're the McDonald criteria. The most recent iteration was published in, well, was done in 2017. And I think simplistically, you're looking for two things. You're looking for dissemination in space, uh, which means involvement of different areas of the central nervous system and dissemination in time. So dissemination in time means different uh, symptoms of appearing at different time points, but actually um, in the most recent McDonald's criteria, they've incorporated oligoclonal bands to be able to fulfill dissemination in time. So you can tell a patient actually that if I do a lumbar puncture for you, uh, with uh, the finding of oligoclonal bands, it may actually change the way we manage you also. Okay, so, so it would potentially be possible to change the diagnosis from CIS to MS yeah, uh, with the help of additional tests, but only with the tests. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you've been working in a UK setting. So would you um, consider starting disease modifying treatments uh, in this patient at this point? So I think any decision on disease modifying treatments, it should be individualized to the patient uh, with a discussion with their clinician and their MS team. 
as well and it takes into account lots of things, their wishes, but also what the doctor knows about their prognostic factors, things that might make them at higher risk of severe MS. So at the moment I think we're talking about someone with CIS, is that right? Yeah. So um, there are studies that have shown that early treatment of CIS with disease-modifying drugs can delay a second episode. If, you're, if you have those bad prognostic factors, so if you're at a high risk of developing multiple sclerosis. You can look at certain things, so the 2018 Ectrams guidelines, for example, they do recommend offering interferon or glutyramyl acetate to patients with CIS and an abnormal MRI <clears throat> with lesions suggestive of MS, but who do not fulfill criteria for MS at that point in time. But I would say that this is an area where local and hospital guidelines may differ. Um, and certainly some, some hospitals may not currently offer treatment yeah. to patients with CIS. Okay. And then um, obviously this patient's uh, going to be followed up, but uh, I guess you'll be sort of asking him to report any symptoms that might represent a future relapse uh, to be assessed. What sort of symptoms should a patient be alert for that might represent a relapse? And what kind of symptoms would be unlikely to be due to a relapse? Yeah, I think this is the very common question that patients ask. Um, it is important to be able to tell them things and give them reassurance about this. So really, uh, as someone advising on this for the patient, you're, look, you're looking to tell them about new focal neurological symptoms. But you want to look, you want to focus on the ones that they're more likely to experience. So I think it would be important to tell them what the symptoms of an optic neuritis, for example, might feel like, to look out for something like that, where you know they may experience loss of vision, in particular collar desaturation and pain that's worse on eye movement. Um, and then otherwise things that are focal and high yield to tell patients, I think, are other tr trouble with your vision, like double vision, numbness or weakness that is persistent in their arms or their legs or their face. Um, and often I will tell them that, uh, you know, you, you can get worsening of previous symptoms uh, in the setting of, of triggers like infections or, or heat and things like that. But I do often say it's, it's better to be safe than sorry. So if they're worried, often, you know, hopefully um, the patient with MS will have a good support network, access to their clinicians or their MS nurses or amazing resources. Um, and they, I usually tell them to reach out if they're worried. It's better for them to be able to, yeah. to have their symptoms discussed. Okay, good. Okay, so uh, next case uh, coming to clinic, uh, you have a 27-year-old female. So she's been referred again to the MS clinic and eight months earlier, she had an episode of sensory disturbance affecting her arms and legs, both both uh, left and right arms and legs. She specifically recalls experiencing an electric shock type pain if she flexes or extends her neck alongside symptoms of urinary urgency. Her symptoms eventually resolved after two weeks, although she feels her waterworks never completely went back to normal and she does occasionally get symptoms if she works out at the gym. More recently, she developed symptoms of visual loss affecting her right eye. This started with a gritty sensation in the eye and progressed onto visual loss, including loss of colour vision and pain on eye movements. She saw an ophthalmolo ophthalmologist who confirmed that she had a right RAPD, so relative afferent pupillary defect, and was diagnosed with uh, an opt right optic neuritis. Her medical history is otherwise unremarkable, but she does have a history of anxiety in the past. On examination now, she has normal acuities in both eyes, quite brisk reflexes but downgoing planters. She's had an MRI scan that's, evident, that's demonstrated evidence of demyelination affecting both the spinal cord and her brain. 
Her previous neurologist performed a lumbar puncture that showed a white cell count of 14, slight elevation in protein, and she did have unmatched oligoclonal bands. Her aquaporin 4 and MOG antibodies were both negative, and she's been given a diagnosis of MS. Okay, so... First of all, I mean, I'll put you on the spot. Say, I mean, do you agree this sounds like a sort of story of a patient presenting with MS? Is there anything in there that you would query or question further? So from the story, it sounds like, you know, they potentially had a spinal cord uh, myelitis type syndrome eight months earlier with that very classic description of Le Meets phenomena. Um, And then when they were presenting, they have a very typical um, presentation for optic neuritis with that visual loss affecting one eye, so unilateral optic neuritis, um, and that collar desaturation, which sometimes people don't say straight away, but if you mention it, they will often offer it. Um, And the right RAPD is also very suggestive. So you've got two clinical episodes here, a myelitis and an optic neuritis. And then, sorry, in terms of the MRI scan, well, you also got that confirming what you were suspecting. Um, and then the CSF um, oligoclonal bands is also a very typical finding in someone with multiple sclerosis. Yeah. So okay. this person would meet dissemination in space uh, because of the brain and spinal cord findings on MRI and dissemination in time because they have two clinical episodes. Yeah. Also. And also oligoclonal bands, as and you said. And they have oligoclonal yeah, yeah. bands. Okay. And I Full think house. I forgot to mention before, but um, another way you can meet uh, dissemination in time is that if they have contrast enhancement on an MRI and evidence of it, for, for example, a previous lesion that didn't have contrast enhancement, that yep. would also demonstrate dissemination in time. Okay. So the, the patient is, is in clinic today and wishes to discuss disease-modifying treatments. Okay. <clears throat> so again, this may differ in cut by country may differ by even uh, region within country or hospital within region but what are the when when do you consider starting dmts in a patient with ms i think discussions regarding starting dmts should be had with patients once they receive the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis it's always individualized once you have that discussion but this would be a time when i think you should start having a discussion okay. about dmts and what would be uh, the various options for treatment at this point for this patient? So I think you've alluded it to it already. It's very different depending on where you practice. So in the UK, treatment is stratified based on severity of the disease. And there's certain things that um, you need to be able to look at in terms of what stratification your patient will fit into. So you're looking at active, highly active or rapidly evolving severe relapsing remitting MS. And then also, we haven't mentioned it here, but you also want to look at other things like do they have secondary progressive MS or primary progressive MS. So you need to sort of classify and stratify your patient before you decide on disease-modifying treatments. Okay. This this patient is presenting with a relapsing remitting disease course. Um, so I guess just to, to delineate them a little bit further, because that will depend on whether yeah. or not the patient can have it. So an active multiple sclerosis based on the UK guidelines would be at least two clinically significant relapses within the last two years. Highly active is if the patient is on disease-modifying treatment already and they continue to have relapses, continue to worsen, continue to have um, a significant amount of new lesions on their MRI. And then rapidly evolving severe relapsing remitting MS where you use the really heavy-duty treatments, you're looking at two or more relapses in one year and a gadolinium-enhancing lesion on MRI, 
or a significant increase in a T2 lesion on MRI. So this patient has two relapses in one year, but I presume without an enhancing lesion or an increase in lesion load, I mean, they've only been scanned once. So in the UK, they have access to a lot of treatments, you know, very, very fortunate. Um, So, and usually we would have a discussion about what treatments would be best for them. But for example, they would have access to things like dimethylfumarate, glutarimer acetate, interferon beta, ocrelizumab, ofatumumab, and teriflunamide. So lots of different treatments, different modes of action, and then it's a discussion about individualized patient care. Yeah, okay. And uh, don't worry, I won't, I won't get you to go into the mechanism of action <laughs> of, uh, of all of those. Okay, fine. So um, another question that can sometimes pop up with patients is they, they ask whether in the absence of new symptoms, is it worthwhile just repeating scans, I don't know, every six months, every year? Is that something that you would routinely think about doing? Is that something that's done? Uh, does it change your management? I think this is a controversial question. You're going to get me in trouble. But um, it, it depends, I think. So it can depend on hospital policy and it can depend on resources as well, obviously. Um, also, what your team is looking to pursue. So there's different ways you can um, look at the treatment for multiple sclerosis. There is something called NIDA or no evidence of disease activity. And then there's different levels of NIDA. So some of them you would be looking at no evidence of new lesions and some of them you'd be looking for no um, atrophy as well, things like that. So it depends on quite a lot of things. But again, if we look at guidelines, I guess, so the Ectrum's guidelines do recommend that if you start, for example, a disease-modifying therapy, then you should be looking at rebaselining that patient and then looking at whether that disease-modifying therapy is being helpful for that patient. So by rebaselining, I mean that it, it can be helpful for a patient to have a repeat MRI scan once they have been established on a disease-modifying therapy. And usually you would do that when they have been on an appropriate amount of time for that disease-modifying therapy to be effective. Because you can imagine that a patient may be starting a treatment like ocrelizumab, but it may not be fully effective yet, and they may develop new lesions at that point in time. That's not necessarily going to make you think that the ocrelizumab isn't working. So rebaselining often happens at six months after that treatment has started. And then if you're looking to see whether that treatment is effective at you know, radiological control, I guess, then you would be looking at repeating that MRI, but usually at about the 12 month or longer mark. Um, It's not always done. um, And, uh, you know, clinical relapses and things like that, arguably, you know, are also very, very important. And you can judge disease activity based on that also. Okay, good. And, um, then finally, uh, for the, for this case, so the patient doesn't have any immediate plans for pregnancy, but it but does you know talk, say that this is something they would wish to consider in the next few years. What what would be your kind of general advice with regards to this sort of MS and pregnancy? I guess is the yeah the yeah it's a big topic. Um, so just general advice that you if you you know if someone's asking for in general how will my MS affect pregnancy. Um, I guess it's important to know that the actual multiple sclerosis, we wouldn't expect it to affect her fertility at all. There are some um, particular lesions that may um, cause sexual difficulties, which will make getting pregnant a little bit more uh, difficult, but the actual multiple sclerosis shouldn't. And many, many women with multiple sclerosis have successful pregnancies. And we have ways of managing the multiple sclerosis and also the treatments throughout pregnancy. So I think the most important thing at this stage with someone who's just been newly diagnosed is just emphasizing those kind of things. 
if we know that they want to get pregnant imminently or you know within the next two to three years we may be opting for disease modifying therapies that we know will be safer in pregnancy things like glutyramine acetate or if a woman has very active disease you may be looking at things like natalizumab the other thing i guess to to tell them at this stage may will be that you know, for most people, the risk of having a relapse is actually lower when they're pregnant. So sometimes that can be a reassuring thing for, for women as well. It, it's obviously it depends on what treatment they were. If they're stopping treatment, yeah. it will have an effect on it as well. But that's a nice thing to be able to tell people. Okay. Excellent. So the, the final case... So the final case we'll discuss today um, isn't actually in the clinics. This is a ward consult. So um, I feel this is a relatively common scenario as well. So patients referred from the ward who has a five-year history of relapsing remitting MS. And she's actually remained neurologically stable over a number of years on Capaxone treatment. She's admitted to hospital because of worsening mobility over the last week and is now off legs, having previously mobilised with a single stick. Alongside this, she reports increased urinary frequency and urgency. So when you look at her, her notes, you see that she initially presented to neurology six years earlier when she had inflammation affecting the uh, cervical cord. She made a good recovery, although was left with some residual lower urinary tract symptoms for which she takes solifenacin. She was diagnosed with MS one year later, so five years ago, after she presented with her second relapse. At that time, that was, an, that was a uh, right optic neuritis from which she made a good recovery. Her examination, her previous examinations have demonstrated spasticity in all four limbs and brisk reflexes. And that's actually similar to what you find today on exam. The medical team have referred as they're concerned that she might be having a relapse and are quite keen to give steroids if that's the case. So, Mary, what would be your initial thoughts on hearing this? Do you think any further investigations are needed? So, in terms of initial thoughts on hearing this, I think, you know, it's good to, f to look at the focus on the history as well as look at the examination findings when you're when you're thinking about these cases so in terms of the history in particular the symptoms whether they're new or old and then the time course and tempo of how the symptoms developed so from from what i was hearing you know the patient was describing worsening limb and sphincter dysfunction um but those were symptoms that she'd had in the past so my understanding is there's no strong evidence of new symptoms at this point in time um and we, I guess, looking at the definition of an inflammatory relapse, you're looking at new or worsening symptoms that last for more than 24 hours in the absence of infections often. Um, in, this patient case, in this patient's case, she does have some symptoms that might be suggestive of an infection with those urinary symptoms as well. So it would be important to rule out a pseudo relapse in this case. Um, especially when you also look at her examination findings. So my understanding is that there's a lack of objective new signs as well. So that is also reassuring. So I would probably recommend ruling out an infection as a trigger of potentially a pseudo relapse at this stage for this patient. Okay, good. Okay, so what, what investigations would you do in this for this patient? So I would do a urine dipstick and a urine MCS. Um, you can also look at blood tests, I guess, looking for raised inflammatory markers or things that might make you, that would suggest that this patient has an infection. Um, if you have the resources to do so and you are very worried, certainly if the patient has new inflammatory activity, it may change the way you manage their MS. And if you have the resources to do so, um, an MRI may be helpful. Okay. And um, I, th I think you may have already answered a little bit of this, actually. But um, so do you have any advice for people who, who might be... 
examining a patient or seeing a patient <coughs> faced with a similar situation and you are trying to distinguish whether this is a relapse or a, a pseudo relapse so um, maybe maybe if you could just clarify what we mean by pseudo relapse that would be maybe helpful first yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, a relapse you are thinking that you know this patient has new inflammatory activity within their central nervous system that is causing their symptoms a pseudo relapse you're looking at um, worsening of previous symptoms that has been triggered by something in particular so the most common things are infections but really it can be anything that makes you feel uh, you know systemically unwell and sometimes also heat can make patients um, patient symptoms feel worse as well okay in terms of differentiating them it's you know things like this it's always a little bit artificial it makes it sound really easy but it's sometimes not it's it can actually be quite tricky I think things to focus on again history is is key um, you want to look at whether the, they have had the symptoms in the past or whether they're definitely new for that patient. And as much as possible, it's nice to obtain objective things like has the patient's walking distance changed, things like that. And then the tempo is important as well. So, for example, if the patient on, on questioning actually says this has been happening over months, then you may be less suspicious of an inflammatory relapse and, and more suspicious of maybe something else like an ongoing progression of their disease yeah okay so so this uh, particular patient uh, further investigation did demonstrate that they had a uti with raised inflammatory markers and they've started on antibiotics a post void bladder scan showed that they were retaining urine um 300 mils and they were organized to have a catheter inserted so you think that a uti triggered a pseudo relapse here uh, again, I feel like you may have just answered this, but just for clarity. So so infection is one potential cause of a pseudo relapse. What are the other things that you'd you'd always make sure you'd make sure work? What, would, what are the other things that you'd always want to exclude as other causes of pseudo relapse? So infection is, is definitely the most common one. Things like urinary tract infections are, are very common. Um, Things like, I mean, they usually wouldn't be presenting when it's just very hot and their, yeah. and their symptoms are worse, but, you know, it can happen. Um, but it's really conditions that will make a patient feel systemically worse, yeah. no matter what that is, or cause a fever for whatever reason, can make old symptoms feel worse. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess the key thing with this sort of, uh, this sort of case is really not to get sort of blindsided by the fact that the patient has a diagnosis of MS and to still think systemically... Uh, you know, do your basic blood work and uh, and then urine screen for urine infections. Excellent. Okay, Miri, thanks. That's the end of uh, the cases today. So thanks for going through those with us. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for speaking on the podcast. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropopcases.co.uk.